We are proud members of the Spy Podcast Network. Find out more at www.spypodcasts.com. Hello and welcome to Spy Hard's podcast where your hosts go deep undercover into the world of spy movies to decipher which films make the knock list. But remember, this information is strictly for your ears only. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur making a fire hydrant rocket launcher. It's very uh, Kirk TOS, wasn't it? That, uh, that little uh, rocket launcher thing. Was it that or was it Jeremy Renner in The Bourne Legacy being inspired by that and bringing it back? It's all connected. And, uh, you know, speaking of connected, um, we have a guest joining us this week. And last time she was on the show, she expressed a certain delight in seeing North Korean torture scenes. So we waited (laughs) until we had another film with exactly the same thing. We called her back. It is M from the Verbal Diorama podcast. Hello, M. How are you? Hello. <laughs> do you know what I was actually thinking when we watched this movie? Uh, I thought to myself, do you know what? This is another North Korea torture scene. And there were so many parallels with Die Another Day. But, um, well, and so many non-parallels with Die Another Day. But Scott, Cam, thank you so much for having me back. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Well, you know, when you were on last time, we obviously introduced Verbal Diorama, but what's been going on since? I do believe you've had a very successful live show since then. <laughs> uh, well, uh, semi, semi-successful. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how you measure success these days. Um, but yeah, I've, uh, I've been doing all sorts of stuff. I've been, yeah, you know, releasing podcast episodes every week. And yeah, I did, did a little live show um, in Birmingham and it was super fun and like people came up to me afterwards and they were really nice to me. That's not what we're used to. And <laughs> <laughs> I'm always like, it's like, it just amazes me. And it's like people who were like, oh, I listened to you. And I was like, oh my God, that's so cute. Um, yeah. So yeah, it was, it was really fun. And it was really nice to meet some really lovely people. And it was also really nice as well because some people who saw me there actually then started listening. So um yeah you can't kind of never expect stuff like that to happen certainly never expect anyone to be like oh i listened to you um and i got presents as well i was like oh my god this is amazing like can i do this every week because i get presents for it um, but, but yeah it was super fun and uh yeah that that's kind of been it just like fighting the good podcasting fight and then you know returning to spy hearts as am i a double agent am i not a double agent who knows I think by the end of this episode, we're all going to be double agents or triple agents, in fact. Quadruple agents. Mm. (laughs) There's only one way to find out. Well, you know, you talk about, you know, your live show and the success. And, you know, we thought perhaps the way to top it off, the uh, cherry on top, is another spy film for you. And this time, female-led, fortunately, because there's so few of those. So we called you up to talk about this week's film. Cam, what do we have? We are tackling 2010's 
Salt, starring Angelina Jolie. This one we've had requested quite a few times online, so I'm glad we've finally gotten around to it. Um, although I've learned so much about it from not only just watching the film, but also just reading some of the behind-the-scenes stuff, which we'll get into in a minute. But um, I think first, just we'll set the table a little bit. Anyone have any initial experience with this film? I'd never seen it before. Em, had you ever caught this film before? Yes, I did see this film before. Um, I didn't see it at the cinema before. Uh, although I, well, if I did, I didn't. I don't recall seeing it at the cinema. But um, but I definitely caught it when it premiered on Sky or wherever it premiered, because you know it's Angelina Jolie and she's amazing and I like everything she does. And it was a female led spy action movie starring Angelina Jolie. So this is exactly my cup of tea, you know, on paper. So yeah, I remember seeing it back in the day. Well, I remember you saying you were a big fan of Atomic Blonde. Love it. And so I thought this is very much in the same realm. Love it. Love it. Yeah, we haven't done that one either yet, to be fair. So uh, that, that might be the uh, the next triumphant return. Here. <laughs> but uh, Cam, what about you? I know I saw this movie in theaters. I had absolutely no memory of it whatsoever other than the score going, salt, salt, salt. That was the only memory I had of this entire movie. So when I sat down to watch it last night, I was, <laughs> M is having a hard time with my uh, impression of the score there. Um, <laughs> sorry. I'm so sorry. I just, I just, I just want to take a break. Just as Cam started going, salt, salt, salt. <laughs> so, I, I know I went and saw this movie. I believe I saw it, oh, I think, with friend of the show, Tyler, who was on our Diamonds Are Forever episode a while back. But, like, I just have absolutely no memory. So I even looked up my grade. I gave it two and a half stars at the time. So that's my takeaway from Salt, is that it completely vanished out of my mind like a vapor. But that score, for some reason, stuck with me. I actually hadn't ever figured out that that's what they were chanting for some reason. So that's just made this film go up at least one star for me already. <laughs> amazing. <laughs> and the thing is, is I, I remember distinctly thinking, are they, are they singing? Because it's like a choir, isn't it? So it's, it's like mm. a proper choral thing. And I do remember thinking originally, are they saying salt? But they distinctly are saying salt. And it it's just incredible. It, or if, if they're not saying salt... Then it sounds like they're saying salt. Yeah. What What other films could be improved by a chorus singing the the name of the film? So in many. The, the movie. So um, many. Well, <laughs> yeah, Jaws. 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 Exactly. That would work. Billion dollar brain. Yeah. Billion dollar brain. <laughs> <laughs> Surely it'd be in the in the, you know you've got to take the John Williams score and you've got to go Jaws, 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 Jaws. Surely that's that's the way you've got to do yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it. Actually, I wouldn't have minded that too much. <laughs> I mean, the the score for Superman is saying Superman musically, so that kind of counts. The John Williams score, so that that one applies. That there's only seven notes, yeah, full notes in the in, in the musical chart. There's no S or U or P. But it goes dun da 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 dun dun da dun. It's saying Superman. That's what it's musically doing. What? Yeah, that was. From conception, that was the point of the song. Like that's that was what they wanted. Wow! Oh, you learn something new every day, folks. Yeah. There you go. I did not know that. 
Well, speaking of did not know, for those who haven't seen Salt, although we would recommend checking out the film, here is your letterbox.com synopsis. Salt. Who is Salt? <laughs> Good question. <laughs> We're all wondering. I'm, I don't think she knows who she is, really. Why is Salt? <laughs> That's not the way you market a movie of who is this character? <laughs> Where am I? <laughs> What's going on? How did you get into my house? <laughs> As a CIA officer, Evelyn Salt swore an oath to duty, honour and country. Her loyalty will be tested when a defector accuses her of being a Russian spy. Salt goes on the run, using all her skills and years of experience as a covert operative to elude capture. Salt's efforts to prove her innocence only serve to cast doubt on her motives as the hunt to uncover the truth behind her identity continues and the question remains who is salt <laughs> they really doubled down on that who is salt <laughs> i just want to know it's like the movie's like who who is this person you tell us Audience, you tell us who Salt is. We don't know. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's, um, you know, we'll talk about it in a little bit, but there's um, some curiosities in terms of um, trying to get across character motivations in this movie. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll put a, a pin in that, Cam, but I, I guess the next step in our uh, dissection, our vivisection of this film is to discuss how it came to be. And I've heard some very interesting stories, so uh, why don't you enlighten us, Cam? Yes, it's uh, really interesting. You know, I don't, I don't know how uh, large uh, salt looms now in the pop culture sphere, but like back in the day, salt was a project that was spoken about for a long time and went through a lot of um, development. And it began um, with the writer Kurt Wimmer, who had gotten his start in um, a couple movies that are, I think, mostly forgotten: Double Trouble, starring the Paul twins. Which anyone listening right now, Google Double Trouble, nineteen ninety two. And look at the poster. You will want to watch this movie like yesterday. So I, I recommend you look that up. The, he also did a movie called The Neighbor with Rod Steiger before he kind of got picked up by Hollywood and wrote some movies like Sphere. He did the Thomas Crown Affair remake starring Pierce Brosnan. And then he also moved into directing and wrote and directed Equilibrium and Ultraviolet with Milo Jovovich. And... Um, those films definitely had their fans. And he's continued on, done things like Law Abiding Citizen, Total Recall Remake, Point Break Remake. So he's had a pretty viable career in Hollywood. But Scott, you um, reacted, I noticed, when you searched Double Trouble. I uh, I just looked up the uh, poster for it. And uh, I want to stop this podcast right now and go and watch this film immediately. <laughs> Yes. It looks it looks like pure and utter unadulterated trash. <laughs> I'm here for it. <laughs> so there's a uh, tip to all of you. Just Google that poster. So while Wimmer was out promoting Equilibrium in 2002, he actually talked about a script called The Far-Reaching Philosophy of Edwin A. Salt, which he was teasing during interviews and said, it's very much about me and my wife. Um... So are they also both Russian spies? <laughs> Potentially. We I all don't are. know. <laughs> so uh, in 2007, Variety reported Edwin A. Salt, the new title. They were uh, dropping all the far-reaching philosophy stuff. Edwin A. Salt would be made by Columbia Pictures, and they were um, approaching Terry George to direct. He had done Hotel Rwanda um, shortly before that. And they were 
viewing this movie as a star vehicle for Tom Cruise. And apparently Tom Cruise had been intrigued for months with the script for Salt. Do you know what he was asking? He was peppering them with questions? Is that what you were saying, Scott? No. He read it and then he just asked himself, who is Salt? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So um, Terry George was on board for a little while. And then he bailed, and Peter Berg, who'd done movies like um, The Kingdom and Hancock at that point, and he's since done a number of uh, Mark Wahlberg films, but um, Peter Berg boarded, and then the writer's strike kicked in at the end of 2007 into early 2008, and that was why, I don't know if any of you remember, in 2009, there was a lot of blockbusters that came out that were really, like, badly plotted. It was because the writer's strike had thrown things into such disarray. Wasn't one of those Quantum of Solace? Yeah, yeah, Quantum of Solace. Um, the second Transformers film. Um, the X-Men the, Origins uh, Wolverine. Yeah, X-Men Origins Wolverine. Are you saying that Transformers 2... Oh, hang on, I'll take that back. Are you saying that the rest of the Transformers films are fine? <laughs> <laughs> the rest of them had no scripting problems whatsoever, Scott. It's just the second one. Just the it's second because the one. rest of them had no script. It was just the rest of them were like completely made up on the spot. But the second one had a script and it got affected. So That's right. right, um, right. I think um, the J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek was affected. It seemed like that one emerged more unscathed than others. But I, I seem to recall that it did have some um, just issues in that regard. Okay. All right. I, I, mean, I wouldn't have noticed it with Star Trek, but you could definitely see it with at least Quantum of Solace. Yeah, definitely. And so like the strike kind of threw the development of Salt. Just, it just came to a standstill for a while. And it wasn't until 2008 that Variety announced that Philip Noyce, the Australian director who'd gotten his start in the late 60s, before making movies like Dead Calm, Patriot Games, Clear and Present Danger, just one of those reliable journeyman Hollywood directors would be coming on board. And he had made The Bone Collector, so he had um, some background experience with Angelina Jolie that would pay off uh, a little bit later down the road um, when she would become attached to this film. But he'd been kind of... In quiet mode for a few years, he'd done things like Rabbit Proof Fence and The Quiet American. And we will cover The Quiet American on this podcast at some point. But Well, and to be fair, um, Clear and Present Danger. And mm-hmm. you know, he, he's apparently, I was just looking at his IMDb. This, he's got quite a few spy films. This is actually, weirdly, this is the first time we're ever talking about him. The Saint. He also directed that. With Val Kilmer, right? Okay. Yeah. Wow. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> spy movie MVP, Philip Noyce. But. Uh, he came on board to do this movie, and around this point, um, shortly after Noyce was hired, Cruz bailed. And why did he bail? There's a lot of questions about that. There are some versions that say he just felt it was a little too similar to Ethan Hunt in the Mission Impossibles. But then also, you look at it, he jumps over and does Night and Day almost immediately after, so maybe he was just more pulled in by that material, because you could make the same argument that Ethan Hunt is very similar to Night in Night and Day. See, I've been having this chat online this week because I mentioned that I'd watched this film. Yeah. And people had pointed out this, this bit of trivia about Tom Cruise. And I was, uh, I was quite surprised by it because initially, because I thought, oh, well, hang on, he does Night and Day very around the same time. But then the character in Night and Day is, is a comedy. It, it's a very twisted take on the spy action guy. Whereas this is, if he was Evelyn Salt, that is really quite close to Ethan Hunt. I don't think the the comedy version is that is as close. I think that's probably a better choice for him. It feels a little more different. Although, I mean, I guess you can make the argument Mission Impossible is a little more 
comic book, whereas like Salt is trying to go a little more the Born route. Yeah, but, I, uh, I would kind of uh, say that I I feel like Mission Impossible is a bit more heightened, you know, in its action. You know, it's like he he's known for these outlandish stunts that he does in those movies. And Salt has none of those. It does have stunts and, you know, but it, it doesn't have anything that I would sort of say is very Mission Impossible-esque. Um, I, I, would, I would just say that uh, a bit in the elevator shaft. Hmm. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a little bit of a mission-y, shall kind, we say. It's kind of not really the same as him hanging off the side of a plane as it's taking off, though, is it? <laughs> or mm. at the Burj Khalifa. <laughs> it's not really the same. <laughs> It's stripped down in comparison to the Mission Impossibles, for yeah. sure. Like it, that's true. That's true. It kind of almost makes sense for crews coming after like Jack Reacher and stuff too, which are a little more stripped down genre exercises. Like I can kind of see what maybe drew him into this, but yeah, Night and Day was where he headed, and we'll talk about that further down the road. Now, the Angelina Jolie casting is sort of interesting. Um, Amy Pascal, the president of Columbia Pictures, had apparently approached um, Angelina Jolie sometime earlier i'm gonna guess maybe a few years earlier and said would you like to do a bond film and angelina jolie was like no <laughs> it was like that quick it was just like she said no i'd like to play james bond i don't want to be a bond girl and i guess that had kind of stuck in amy pascal's head of like oh okay well maybe if a spy franchise rolls around we could talk to her about that and that's sort of where it came into play because she actually approached angelina jolie and said would you like to work on salt and so that's what kind of led to this. I'm wondering, do you think she talked to her for Die Another Day? That timeline wouldn't have worked. Oh, well, it kind oh, of well, would. Actually. If it was years earlier? So we're talking in a Jinx role then? Yeah. It's all co- I'm glad we have M back for this. This is all connected <laughs> here. This is great. Huh. I, c- I could not imagine Angelina Jolie as, well, as a Bond girl generally. No. But I can't, imag- I can't imagine her as Jinx. I can't imagine Angelina Jolie doing your mama jokes. But no, I don't so think that would have been in the script. Obviously. When Diana the <laughs> Day came out, hadn't she just done the Tomb Raider? She'd done the two Tomb Raider movies at that point. She would have done the first one, I think. I think uh, Tomb Raider 2 might have come out after Die Another Day. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure of my Tomb Raider lore. <laughs> Aren't we covering those at some point? Maybe on the Patreon. <laughs> Oh. <laughs> not in the main feed um wait what year was die another day 2002 yeah cradle of life was 2003 right, yeah okay. okay so it fell right between but like i can't imagine they would have been talking to julie even like floating out a hint about casino royale because they would not want a megastar opposite a like newly emerging daniel craig i just don't think that's what they were looking for and i can't imagine it would have been for quantum of solace but then vesper lind the actor who plays Vesper Lind, Eva Green, does bear a striking resemblance to Angelina Jolie. She does. Yeah, but I guess. Did I don't... you squint? <laughs> uh, yeah, I suppose. Yeah. But, I mean, uh, Eva, well, I... Eva Green is great, but I, I kind of would side with what Cam said in that Eva Green wasn't a huge name in Hollywood at the time. So, kind I suppose, of... yeah, it wouldn't make sense having like. Daniel Craig and Angelina Jolie. Yeah. It would be Angelina Jolie, then Daniel Craig. Exactly. And all those posters would have to have Daniel Craig right next to Angelina Jolie, right? Like, it doesn't really make sense. So, well, mm. something to, uh, if we ever feel like doing a revisit of Die Another Day, we will dig even deeper on Die Another Day. Um, 
And so when Jolie came on board, they brought on writer Brian Hegeland, who had uh, won an Oscar for L.A. Confidential. He'd also done movies like Mystic River, Man on Fire. And he was basically brought in to help ease the transition from Edwin Salt into Evelyn Salt. And so he took notes from Jolie and from what they wanted and applied those. And at the time, if you look at Variety articles, they refer to the Salt script being written by Kurt Wimmer and Brian Helgeland. But if you watch the finished film, uh, Wimmer got um, just complete screenplay credit himself. So it would seem he didn't contribute quite enough to get a credit. But at the time, it was seen as one of the major writers on the film. So I suspect it was more just in terms of rewriting it to be Evelyn Salt versus Edwin Salt. I, I, don't, I don't think the... Uh... I don't think I could ever tell there was a, a, a male character at any point. I, I feel like this, this character is such a cipher it could have been written for anyone anyway. So True. Yeah, it, does, yeah. it doesn't bump for me. Yeah, no. the, the only thing that kind of... And I, I suspect this is something that they, they kind of added afterwards. Um, but the only thing that really stood out to me that maybe they'd clearly kind of changed the gender was when... So something happens that towards the start of the movie and I don't feel like that would have happened if it had been a male character um and so when she's interrogating i'm gonna say his name is Orlov. yep um the 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 russian guy and he's obviously telling her this story about sleeper agents and stuff like that and and he mentions um he mentions her wedding rings and he says something along the lines of oh um it must be a distraction for you working in the CIA and having a husband at home or some, something along those lines. I'm paraphrasing here. I, I feel like if it was Edwin Salt and he was talking to all of that, a man wouldn't say that to a man. I mean, feel, feel free to, uh, to disagree if, if you kind of think that it might happen. But I don't think that if a man saw a man with a wedding ring, he would say to that man, oh, well, it must be a distraction for you working in the CIA, having a wife at home. No, I think you're right on that. Yeah. Yeah. But that, that's the be. only thing. That's the only thing I picked up on that I felt was very gender specific to a female character as opposed to the male character it was originally. Yeah, and you actually cued me up just for a little bit of trivia there in terms of behind the scenes with, you know, August Deal, who plays her husband, and that he was cast after Brad Pitt recommended him because he had worked with him on Inglorious Bastards. Um, so that was kind of how that happened. And it's also notable, Angelina Jolie had just given birth to twins and basically rolled right into training for this movie. So that is incredibly impressive. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I have no doubt she had the chops. I mean, she was already, you know, doing the fitness stuff back in Lara Croft days. She, you know, she's always, uh, in that sense, been up for the, the roles in terms of the fitness and the sort of action film. So she had that already in her back pocket i would say it's interesting to have august deal appear like once again within like four weeks of a, I know. Of a review yeah because yeah. he was in munich edge of war yeah yeah um completely different character <laughs> completely completely much nicer yeah i would share a train with this guy <laughs> so the budget for this movie was 110 million dollars domestically it did 118.3 international 175.2 for a worldwide total of 293 point five so it was a hit it definitely made money but it wasn't maybe the like home run franchise launch they wanted well i suppose this is the best place to talk about it but this felt like it was meant to be the start of something yeah, yeah. where did that go 
Oh, I can follow that up in just a moment. One of the things that really frustrates me about this movie, actually, is the fact that it feels like the first part of a Mm two-parter. It'd be like having, I don't know, the Lord of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, and then it's stopping. And then you never find out what actually happens to the characters. Felt a little bit like that, but they were clearly setting up for this sequel that never materialised. Well, I know there's a, a, a bonus ending on the extended edition that I went and saw out on YouTube today, um, which I, I think it's kind of got that whole, because this film has this sort of the Black Widow thing going underneath it where they went to the school and did the training. And in this extended ending, she kills the guy at the start who sort of triggers her with you know with the ring and everything. But And that, you could say, is the end of her story. But even then, it doesn't really feel like it's the end of her story. No, and there was like three cuts of this movie, and like I think one of them revealed that the president, the new president, because the president died, I believe, in one of the cuts, yeah. and the mm-hmm. new president was a Russian mole. Yeah, I read that. Earlier. Yeah, it, it's it was on my cut I watched today actually. It's in like a it's it's in like a TV report in the background. Yeah, like oh uh, you know, new president's parents died whilst they were working in a Moscow embassy or something like that, and you're like oh, okay, this is this is a sequel, surely. Anyway, but Cam, you had a bit of trivia for us? Yeah, so I'll just uh, wrap up the box office, and then I've got some notes on Salt 2. This landed at number 23 for the year between Shutter Island and Sex in the City 2. The top three for this year were Toy Story 3, Alice in Wonderland, and Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1. Family films reigned supreme in 2010. Every single one of the films you just mentioned, apart from Salt, I saw in the cinema that year. Um, I saw all of them, I suppose. Mm. What a disappointment I am. <laughs> Yay me. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> this film was nominated for one Oscar for Best Achievement in Sound Mixing, and it lost to Inception. <laughs> Well-deserved. Well-deserved Inception. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just to close this out, Salt 2, the script was being developed for quite a while. Um, Kurt Wimmer was aboard immediately to develop Assault 2. Angelia Jolie apparently rejected a draft in 2012, and then they brought on Becky Johnson, who'd written The Prince of Tides, and she developed it for a while, and then it all apparently just went quiet. And I guess Columbia wasn't necessarily pursuing it that aggressively. Angelia Jolie wasn't that interested. So in 2016, they pivoted and started developing a TV series called Salt, that uh, Sony was developing for TV, and it would be about her tracking moles, I guess, episode to episode. And then it just quietly went away. And there's some notes I noticed online of them just saying it was very similar to the concept of Blacklist, the James Spader show that came uh, around and was quite popular. So maybe they decided that Salt didn't make any sense anymore to do as a show. So that was kind of the, uh, you know, inglorious end of Salt. That's a shame. Yeah. It's, it, it sounds like maybe the, the key component was Angelina Jolie not wanting to do it again. Um, which I, I suppose I wouldn't want it to be recast. I, I would want Angelina Jolie in, in the week. Yeah. Weeks. Yeah, I agree. Well, I guess it's time to get down to it and talk about Salt. Although I think we should maybe uh, pitch some ideas for the title of Salt 2 later on in the episode. So have a little think about that uh, whilst, whilst we do it. But, oh, uh, I have it. Extra spicy. Oh no! I, you know, I've I've got I've got a good one. I've got a good one. So, 
sequel. The sequel's called Rock Salt. So you've got Angelina Jolie versus Dwayne The Rock Johnson. Oh. Clash. Mm. Rock Salt. I like it. There we is, go. Is The Rock also a Russian agent? Yeah, so I, I think I think he's got to be a Russian agent, but I don't know if... Is that in his repertoire? Who knows? He's never been a... I don't think he's ever been in a spy movie full stop, has he? Dwayne The Rock Johnson, but... Central Intelligence. Oh, of course! Well, that was more of a mm. comedy, though. Um, but anyway, yeah, so that that's my pitch. Rock Salt. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to go with uh, Salt and Pepper, <laughs> uh, where uh, she brings along a delightful dog called Pepper. Oh, I thought you were going to say Pepper Pig! <laughs> Well, both, it's both animal based, but uh, yeah, I, I like it. Salt and pepper. There we go. Um, well, okay. Salt. M, you're our guest. You get the first discussion. So, what did you think of salt when you revisited it for the show? So, the first thing that I thought about salt, and I think the most important thing about salt, is how great Angelina Jolie is. She is actually really great in this movie, and. In many ways, I feel like this movie kind of doesn't do her justice because the script is pretty bad. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, the the plot is kind of a bit nonsensical in places. I know it's a spy movie and I know sometimes you have to have like a, a reasonable amount of, you know, stretching of your disbelief kind of thing when it comes to action or spy movies or whatever. But I feel like Angelina Jolie really really embodies this kind of double agent because she's obviously incredibly beautiful woman. Um, and I feel like as well, that when it comes to female spy movies, you obviously mentioned earlier, Scott, that there aren't very many out there. And it's a real shame really, because the fact that women are rarely afforded the opportunity to be headlining a spy movie feels like feels like a bit of an injustice really because i feel like if you have a room full of people and say one of one person in that room could be a spy you're never going to suspect the woman you're never going to suspect the beautiful woman and i feel like there's so much opportunity out there for female spy movies female spy franchises and in a way it's kind of sad that this movie isn't this movie is good. I like this movie a lot, but I feel like Angelina Jolie deserves something a something more elevated for her because she her performance is really good. Like you you question her motives and she's obviously the protagonist of this movie. She's we don't know at the start of this movie once obviously this whole whether she's a spy or not comes out and then she runs you don't really know why she's running until the movie makes it obvious why she's running. Um, you know, I think I feel like it maybe takes the movie a little while to make her motivations clear. But I think once the movie does make her motivations clear, the fact that she's basically at the start of the movie, she realises that her, her husband is in danger. And so her first instinct is to go and find her husband. And you don't know whether that's because she's actually guilty or whether she just actually wants to find her husband. Um, and I also really like as well that she's, she kind of saves the dog. And I feel like mm. that's always a, a positive character trait to have if someone actually saves the dog or, you know, makes the dog safe. So I was like, yeah, you, 
I feel like at that point, you know, she's good because she makes sure her dog is safe. But um, I think she is really good. I feel like it's not one of, it's not like the greatest role she's ever done by a long stretch. But I like the fact that her Evelyn Salt is bold and brave and kind of fearless. But she's also got this vulnerability about her. And I feel like the scene in which her husband dies, you can see in her face, she's got this, you know, she wants to be stern, she wants to be strong, but you can just see the little cracks in there of a woman who's just seen her husband get murdered. And that's basically all she wanted to do was find her husband. And I would actually question, and I, I feel like I need to ask you both, if this was Tom Cruise as Edwin Salt, do you think that Tom Cruise could have played this role as good as Angelina Jolie? Because I kind of feel like Tom Cruise couldn't have done this. And I'd really like to know your opinions. I, I think you touched on something in your just breakdown there where you talked about how she really shows like vulnerability. Like Angelina Jolie is very good at giving off this kind of hard-edged vibe and yet being very vulnerable when you see when you look into her eyes. Tom Cruise does not trade in vulnerability. He is someone who often wants to be this kind of formidable, inconquerable action-type character where they may show emotion, but there's never a question as to what their core is driving them. And I think that it would have been a much more straightforward movie in terms of your lead character with Tom Cruise, I, especially in this era where it would be much more focused on, I think, the kind of the action stuff and what he could pull off there versus character um not so much development but i guess character insight whereas angelina jolie is a genuine dramatic talent and so it seems like that's what's more interesting to her she obviously likes doing action she does a lot of action movies tomb raider mr and mrs smith there's a whole bunch of them wanted but like she seems genuinely interested in just exposing the character for the audience and no way tom cruise wants to do that as much I suppose my answer to the question would be I don't think the character would have been written this way if Tom Cruise was in the lead. Yeah. I, I think I, I think it's a different actor and you write to your actor if you can. And I think they would have written Edwin Salt to be far more transparent in his motives. And so there wouldn't be all these question marks around her motive in the film, or his yeah. motive, I should say. And I, I just don't think he has the depth to deliver what is on the page for Angelina Jolie. So no, I don't think the performance would have been the same, but I don't think they would have aimed for it to be the same. That's fair. That's a fair assessment. Um, uh, but I don't think we would have got necessarily as good of a character, not necessarily say the film, but the character of Evelyn Salt, I think is a, a very interesting spy in the history of spies. And, and sort of maybe to throw my two cents in, but also to sort of tie into something you said, Em. And this is a weird connection to make. But at the start of Charlie's Angels 2019, hmm. there's this really great scene with Kristen Stewart. Cam should remember the scene. Yeah. Where she says about men are more suspicious of other men than other women. It takes them longer to be more suspicious of, other, of women or something to that effect. Or maybe it's people to be more suspicious of women. And at the beginning of the film, you're like, yeah, that's a really cool idea. Like These women spies can be powerful because they're never suspected. And then the film just drives off of a cliff after that. But... That nugget of an idea is really good. And it's a shame that spy movies don't make don't take advantage of that. I mean, there's been some female-led ones that we've covered so far. You go all the way back to the 1930s, Matahari. You know, 
female-led spy movie and it proven that we can do it and we've had female spies for a very very long time in history predating what we know as spy work um and so i don't know why we focus on these mat well i I take it back i know why we focus on these macho-led action spy films i know exactly why but it's just a shame um but to speak to salt i think i agree i think angelina jolie is wonderful in this film i just don't think the film has legs around it i don't think the, i don't think the i think the story the idea the concept of this double agent this russian double agent is very good we haven't seen it since little nikita back in the 1980s of sydney poitier and river phoenix which is again i remember saying in that episode i like the concept i don't like the delivery yeah same problem here good actors sydney poitier and river phoenix were fantastic in that film Angelina Jolie is fantastic in this film, but everything else around her just crumbles. I mean, you know, what's that Beatles song? They know how many holes it takes to fill the Albert Hall. Well, I know how many plot holes it takes to fill the Albert <laughs> Hall now from watching this film. Um, it, apparently quite a few. It, it happens very early on. And I watched these films twice, and I stress this. I watched them twice. And even on my second viewing, and I paid attention both times, I still... The film doesn't really tell you people's motivations or even like telegraph them or give you hints particularly. It just likes to flip the script once in a while and like, just give you that sort of spy rip off the face mask. Oh, 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 it was me all along just to give you those twists and turns. But it's just for the sake of giving you twists and turns. It's not really to benefit the film. And I think that's a real detriment to it, especially that one towards the end with um, Lee Schreiber's character. I mean, for me, that comes out of nowhere, and I am both times I saw it, I'm just like, "What is this absolute trash?" <laughs> it's really difficult to form a movie where your three leads, their um, motivations are obscured because even she would tell Edgy for, you know, he's with NSA. They aren't necessarily underlining that he's on, you know. Like, we should just take him at face value. There's always the question of who's on what side. And so it's like, you never know. You can't rely on any character in this movie to kind of give you a overview as to what's going on. Because everyone is kind of suspect within what they're creating in this movie. Because they say right up front, there's a mole in the CIA. So you're like, well, okay, I guess there's a mole out there. And I don't think it's my main character. So it's got to be someone else. So you can't trust anyone. Whereas when you look at some of these movies where they keep the main character's motivations obscured, there's at least someone who's able to explain exactly what's going on and you can rely on that one character. Mm -hmm. This movie doesn't have that. <laughs> so I found that frustrating just from a storytelling point of view because Evelyn Salt is someone who I could totally see a franchise being built around. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about, Scott, like other movies where you know you launch a franchise and they're not all perfect. You know, Dr. No isn't necessarily the perfect James Bond movie. Born Identity, I think, improves when Paul Greengrass joins the franchise with Supremacy. But, like, both of those movies knew exactly what they were doing and knew who this character was and how to present it to an audience so that they could deliver sequels that people liked even more. Salt may have led to a really good sequel. We'll never know. But in terms of this movie... It doesn't feel like the most confident of like, here's a character you should genuinely care about and want to follow in preceding films. It feels like it's often trying to confuse the audience. And I don't know that that's the best way to get them involved with a character. And 
so that part kind of bothered me. One thing I thought was of note, and I don't even know if it's a criticism, more of an observation. When I was watching the movie, I had to like relook up, like, what year did this come out? This was 2010? When I watched this movie, short of the kind of half-hearted nods to Bourne-style action, this movie feels like it's from the late 90s or something. Like, it's very interesting that Philip Noyce directed it, who had this career through the 90s, because this feels like the type of star-driven action sort of thriller you got in, like, the late 90s. It, it feels almost out of date, especially when I'm reading, like, that top three or whatever, where it's, like, all these, like, huge CG family films, you know, these huge blockbusters. And then you have this movie, which is so much, like, less assuming. It uh, feels much more stripped down. It's, like, 95 minutes, basically, of just a you know, movie star-driven chase, and that's about it. it. It's almost refreshing in a way to see a movie like this in comparison to, you know, this is two years after the MCU was launched. That's the future of movies right there. We are, you know, five years away from Star Wars coming back, and yet, like, Salt feels like something of a relic now when I, you know, revisit it in 2022. Yeah, and I think that's that's what I was trying to allude to earlier, is that it, it feels very grounded, like, it, it doesn't feel like it's showing off in, in any way. But by not showing off, it's like, it's almost like it's not spectacular enough, you know? Um, if it had a spectacular fight scene, um, the, the one that always springs to mind when I think of fight scenes is always the uh, hallway scene in Daredevil, for example, where you've got yeah. just a huge choreographed, brilliant fight scene that, that will basically draw an audience in to go, I want to watch it just for that one scene because that one scene is so awesome, it makes me watch the whole series. Um, and I feel like Salt is really lacking in that. And it's it's not Angelina Jolie because she's really good and she gives it her all. But even like the fight choreography feels like, it feels like there's no, I can't even think of the word, like there's no, there's no like, uh, it's not visceral. Like there's no force behind the punches and the kicks and it's, it's almost like it's, you know, like, it almost feels like pretend fighting. You know, when you're pretending to fight someone and you kind of miss on purpose. It feels like that. The fight scenes don't feel like there's any weight to them. Um, and it doesn't feel like it, it just needed, like, I think one spectacular scene in this movie, whether it was a car chase, because there's obviously plenty of car chases. Angelina Jolie spends a lot of her time on top of, like, trucks and stuff like that can be really great in other movies and i was trying to think earlier like why is it not great in this like what is it missing is it is it something to do with the score is it something to do with the direction is it something to do not with the score but it's not it, the score but it, it's, it's <laughs> like, what, what, what is it lacking and I, I still haven't quite put my finger on what it's lacking but it's lacking something in yeah. in its in its in its entirety i think to make people go oh, remember that movie Salt? Wasn't that movie awesome? Because no one talks about this movie anymore. And I think it's because it's just so forgettable in a way because there's nothing really well, spectacular about it. I think one thing me and Cam have discovered in close to 100 films now at this point is there's two camps that these spy films tend to fall into. There are, of course, outliers like there are with all genres or the spying is, is not really a genre. Um, there's the sort of the espionage, the cold espionage films like Bridge of Spies and the Spy Who Came In From The Cold and then there's more these sort of spy action films 
Um, and this is meant to be a spy action film, but those spy action films tend to have a sequence that you will remember when you leave the cinema. And whether it is that moment when she's on the truck, and we you know we know that can be done well. The Matrix Reloaded was out a few years before this, and that has I still remember that scene on top of the trucks. Great stuff. Uh, Born came out in two thousand and two, eight years before this, and I still remember that fight with the pen. The pen, and also I remember a lot being written at the time about the car chase in that movie and how mm-hmm. people had never really seen a car chase like that in a spy movie. And the entire Born trilogy, the initial Born trilogy, has come out at this point. This is three years after Ultimatum, and so when you watch it, yeah, like I agree, Em, it's you're looking for that one thing. Like, what does this movie do that other things don't? And I wonder if part of the problem was they clearly wanted sort of that born immediacy in their fights and action sequences. But it's a director who's very comfortable making like 1990s Hollywood big studio star driven vehicles. And now he's being kind of follow in the footsteps um, of like Paul Greengrass action, which maybe just isn't his comfort thing. And so you get kind of very choppy execution throughout the movie. And it's not what drives him. It's not what he's best at. So I'm wondering if that's maybe part of the problem, but it does feel even on the page, though, there's nothing that you could point to as being like, this is going to be our showstopper sequence. I guess it's the truck sequence, I guess, but... (laughs) But that's that's the problem, isn't it? What what is the showstopping sequence in this movie? Is it the truck? Is it when she, um, you know, infiltrates the the White House bunker? is it when she's escaping from, you know, from the CIA? But none of them are really, none of them kind of stand out as being that one spectacular scene. But one of them should be that one spectacular scene, I think. I, I was talking to a friend of the show, Tom Butler, earlier today from the James Bond A to Z podcast. Cheap plug there. There you go, Tom. Um, and he said, the only thing he remembers about the film is her wearing a beanie. <laughs> and, oh. that, and he he reviews films for a living uh for yahoo you know that's his job and so if that's all that stands out to him it makes you wonder what they're doing we interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair we're putting out the call for your support. That's right. As you may know, we've activated the Spy Hearts Patreon, home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? Well, Scott, calling the Avengers, and I'm not talking about Cap and Hawkeye. I'm talking about Emma Peel and John Steed, because we are going to do a commentary on 1998's The Avengers. Get into your teddy bear suit, people. And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. But I will pivot us over because I want to talk about things that we liked because there are plenty of things to like about this film and we've got to show it some love. So, Em, you're a guest. Guess first. Something you liked. Um, well, obviously, I, I feel like I can't really use the Angelina Jolie thing again because even though she is great. Um, another thing that I really liked about this movie was um, 
obviously we've talked about the fact it was originally a Tom Cruise vehicle. Um, and I did mention earlier about that one scene, but I feel like overall, this is a reasonably gender blind movie in that Evelyn Salt is not treated any differently in the rest of the movie for being a woman. Um, and the only thing, I feel like I'm going into a negative thing again. I'm really sorry. Um, but the only thing with that is I feel like because she's the only female focus in this movie, um, I don't know whether that was done on purpose because I feel like the rest of the roles in this movie are predominantly men. Um, so it feels like there's a real gender disparity in this movie because you have kind of all of the men versus Evelyn Salt. Um, and having her as like the lone female, I kind of don't know how I feel about that. I feel like if your movie is going to be gender blind in its casting, which is always great. I mean, you know, going back to Alien in 1979, when they truly did gender blind casting, um, that proved that you literally you choose the right person for the role and you end up with something as amazing as Alien. But I feel like I like Liev Schreiber and I like Chiwetelegia for. The problem I have with the Chiwetelegia for role is I feel like he's given so very little to do other than just be the, oh, she's guilty, we need to find her, you know. And that's basically all he says over and over again until the end. Um, and I, I actually all, I remember being quite surprised by the, the, the Liv Schreiber switch because I genuinely did not see that coming at all. Um, I do kind of question how that character ended up in the safe room with the president. I mean, I know, is he, <laughs> is he even the head of the CIA? I don't even think he's the head of the CIA. So how is, no, I, how is I he in that so. room with the president? Well, the president had a very dopey look in his eyes through the entirety of this movie, so maybe he's just not the brightest of presidents. I mean, <laughs> I, mean I feel like out of the, all of the cinematic great presidents that we've had in movies <laughs> over the years, this guy is literally not in the top 1,000, is he? Uh, you know? No, he's somewhere near the bottom. <laughs> sorry, uh, sorry, Hunt Block. Oh, I'm so sorry. That is the actor's name. So Terrific sorry. name. Um... Oh, wow. <laughs> Hunt Block. Hunt Good Block. for him. Um, uh, yeah. President Lewis. Uh, Lewis, that's lame. You got to have a name like Hunt Block. <laughs> President Block. Uh, I, I apologize, Hunt Block, for, for saying that you're not a great president. I'm um, sure you will be one day, kid. Keep working hard. Um, <laughs> Say your prayers, eat your vitamins, yeah. you'll get there. Um, well, I, I, let's, let's pivot what you said into, into a good thing a little bit because, okay, you, you mentioned Angelina Jolie. But we haven't dug into the fact so much about it having a female lead, really. No. And I think that is still something to be celebrated. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. 100%. I feel like because there's not many of us, of us, obviously, I'm talking about me as a female action spy heroine lead. I think it's about 50-50, really. <laughs> about three, four billion of you, but man. Nah. There's, there's only a handful of us out there, Scott. So, you know, when we get the representation, <laughs> it really does mean something. Um, But, you know... I, all jokes aside, you know, this movie feels like such an anomaly. Um, and I, just as a brief exercise, I didn't actually spend too much time on it because I'll be honest, I didn't have a great deal of time before we started recording. But I thought to myself, well, I'm just going to go back, you know, the last 20, 30 years in cinema and kind of think, well, what else did we have? 
And the only things I could come up with, and I'm sure there's more, and I'm sure everyone listening will go, well, actually, I think you'll find that there's been more than that. But the only ones I could come up with were The Long Kiss Goodnight, which is more of a dual role shared between Gina Davis and Samuel L. Jackson, but it's awesome. So, yeah, Gina Davis rocks in that movie. Mm -hmm. Uh, Red Sparrow, starring Jennifer Lawrence. The excellent Atomic Blonde, which is actually awesome on every level. Love that movie. Um, Black Widow, which obviously came out last year. Uh, the 355, which came out last year, I'm going to say. Even though, yeah. This year. This year, January. last year. This year. This year. Yeah. I did actually go to the cinema to th- see the 355, and I still don't remember it. Um, and um, the only <laughs> the only other one. Coming that- <laughs> soon, 355. The 355 was fine. Like, a lot of people slated that movie, but it again could have been a lot better with that cast whoa that was an awesome cast um and the only other one that I came up with was hannah and even then you know hannah is a child essentially she's not like a oh she's a female but she's not like a, a woman spy. Right. she's like a child um but all of those movies i mean there's varying levels of of, of greatness in those movies but i feel like a lot of the time a movie like salt is used as an excuse to not make another movie like Salt. And it's it's funny because obviously, Cam, you mentioned how successful this movie was. This movie was a success. It was a financial success. Didn't bomb at the box office. Um, it didn't get the sequel that it so desperately craved. But I feel like a lot of the time, movies like this, if people don't like them, if they don't resonate, if they're not great, if there's something wrong with them, any one thing, it's used as an excuse to not make more. Whereas you don't yeah. get that with male leading action movies. You don't get, you know, if a Mission Impossible movie doesn't quite, you know, set the critics alike, you don't get the argument of, well, let's not make any more of these Mission Impossible movies because clearly there's not a market out there for them. No one wants to see Tom Cruise lead an action movie. And uh, yeah, we, we might as well just stop it. Um, and I feel like the the, the excuse for women-led movies not just spy movies but movies in general is well they're just not as good are they as the men so let's not bother making these again um and it really frustrates me it really frustrates me because there is a great movie in here there really genuinely is a great movie in here and Mm -hmm. it's not at the hands of angelina jolly that it's not a great movie because she is really truly great in this and I feel so much like we should not have a list of, let's say, for I mentioned six, but let's say, for argument's sake, there might be a few more out there. Let's say ten. We shouldn't have There's a rhythm section as well, I think of. Oh, yes, of course. I've not seen that, but I've, I've heard about that one. But again, that one didn't do very well. Oh, no. So no. it feels like these movies are used as an excuse to not make more when really hollywood should be saying well yeah let's let's actually um take our the 50 percent of our audience who's not represented um obviously i'm talking about male versus female here and apologies to anyone else like any non-binary people listening i'm clearly just trying to be as secular with this as possible um in a sense of representation across or well across all kind of divides really should be an equal split it should be an equal split 
And the fact that we're at a point where men and women still aren't an equal split in 2022 is really a problem because then you go into, you know, LGBTQ representation, non-binary representation, uh, racial representation, all of this stuff. And it's like, if we can't even get the split between men and women rights in Hollywood, wh where are we going wrong? <laughs> well, where, where are they going wrong? Because it's not us, it's them. Like, where are they going wrong? I don't get it. Because... Th I, these, these are questions I have posed many times on this podcast. And, and Cam can affirm that I have lamented on record a number of times poor writing for female characters or the lack thereof of female characters in some of the spy films we've covered and it frustrates me to no end and, and also just outside of spy movies but obviously this is what we contain ourselves to on this podcast and yeah we had helen o'hara on the show last year the great helen o'hara talking about charlie's angels full throttle now that's hardly the the feminist bastion the full throttle i mean not helen <laughs> and you know we were talking about just like this lack of diversity in spy films and, and in Hollywood in general. And it goes back a century at least now. And I just feel like it's exactly that. They're just using an excuse not to do more. But I think it's just a case of if you look at the most recent Bond film, for example, No Time to Die. Now, they brought Phoebe Waller-Bridge in to punch up some of the female characters in the film. And lo and behold, the Leia Sadu character mad, uh, improves from you know Spectre to No Time to Die by having a female writer in the cast who can actually talk about the experience of being a female. I can't talk about it as well as someone who is a woman or identifies as a woman. Um, I can't talk about that as well, but she can. And so she did. And it was proof was in the pudding. But a lot of these films are written by men. You know, we have to go back to the fundamentals of what, who are putting these films together. And and I think one of the other problems is as well is is we look at what the 355 did. And me and Cam are going to be tackling that soon on the show. The marketing led heavily into the fact that, look at it, it's women in this movie. It shouldn't be about that. It should be about this is a great story and this is why you should care. What's your concept? What, yeah, what's the concept? Like, why, why is the audience showing up? I mean, look at Salt, the marketing. Who's Salt? Who's Salt? And that's kind of their marketing push. And it's like with 355, I don't even remember what the marketing push was other than they're women and they're spies. Yeah, that was basically it. And I, But to be fair, it got me because I was like, well, what got me was the cast oh, yeah. because I was like uh, Lupita Nyong'o, Jessica Chastain. Mm -hmm. um, and I was I was sold on the cast, like genuinely thought this is going to be incredible based on the cast and based on previous things that they've done. And, you know, I feel like obviously every time an, an actor takes a role, it's a, it's a clean slate, isn't it? You can't really base anyone's performance on a previous performance. but. If you've got like Lupita Nyong'o, Jessica Chastain, um, oh, um, Penelope Cruz, you know, all of these amazing women, you kind of think it's probably going to be good. It's a little bit unfortunate that it wasn't as good as I thought it might be. But again, that's not down to those actors. It's not down. It's not down to the fact that they're women. You know, it's just the script was bad. And again, the the, uh, the action choreography in the three five five is is pretty bad as well. Um, but anyway, I feel like going off on a tangent because we're not here to talk about the three five five. But well, I, I will just say three five five directed by, written by a man, Simon Kinberg. Yeah, and I think like one thing also to note, and this kind of brings us back to Salt, is that you often will have like a male fronted action franchise, and the first one will do okay. It'll do 
decent money, but, you know, nothing that's like a home run. I think of like, you know, John Wick or Jack Reacher or something like that where they do decent and they're like, you know what, let's roll the dice on that sequel because we may have something here. And in the case of John Wick, it really takes off. In the case of Jack Reacher, it didn't. But they'll always, you know, roll the dice on that versus, you know, Salt. They were kind of like, well, we're developing it, but it just feels like there was never a real genuine, like, we need to try this. Like, it may work. We may have a character here that could take off with a second film. They're like, ah, you know what? It's fine. It's fine. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, it was originally pitched as a Tom Cruise film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It was the second choice. Yeah, true. It says a lot. It says a lot there, unfortunately. But I will I will take a nugget out of what M said and, and use that as my like. And that is the nugget of the concept of the story, uh, which, again, I said I liked at the start. I think this whole duality of being a spy is one of the, the more interesting concepts of spy work. And it's generally lost in like the, the James Bond films. But, you know, trying to live your life and also be a spy at the same time. And, you know, you see Evelyn Salt, you know, her motives at the start is to save her husband. And, to, and, and you know, a lot of people understand that because you, you have people in your life you love and you want to protect. And so you understand that her first instinct is to go and defend the people that she loves. She doesn't care about what people think about her. She has that intrinsic pull to be that person that defends her because she has the power to defend him. He is a spider expert. An, an, an arachnist or, or whatever it was weird gimmick by the way arachnologist <laughs> arachnologist yes uh we're all russian spies and arachnologists on this podcast was and, he okay um, scott was he only an arachnologist because it had to set up that she would use spider venom later in the movie yeah i think so <laughs> i i yeah. guess but like what a weird what a weird jump like you could have had anything like that knocked that guy out did it have to be spider venom i mean <laughs> yes, maybe. I'm not a spy- spider specialist. I don't know. Maybe it is. I mean, obviously, she must be a bit of a, uh, a arachnologist too to know the exact spider that she needed and the exact amount of venom that she needed to extract from that spider. <laughs> hey, she was she was creeping on August Eel for for weeks <laughs> in that yeah. uh, in that forest or wherever it was that she was looking. Was that at like a there. butterfly refuge or something? I guess. I I just assumed they'd gone to the Eden Project for a holiday or something. <laughs> I, I oh. don't creep on many arachnologists, so I don't know how where they hang out. <laughs> Not yet. <Yeah>. Not yet. <laughs> From this movie Call me though. arachnologists. Yeah. I like the way you web. Never say never, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> I like the way you web. But yeah, I just think the uh, the story underneath is really, really uh, interesting, and I wish we had more of that. Uh, unfortunately, it starts to spin a web uh, off into its own thing later in the film. It kind of loses that magic for me. But the the initial idea, I think, is fun. I, for my, like, it it just really just ties to Jolie. Like, I don't know that there's that much to go beyond what Angelina Jolie's bringing to the movie. But, like, I will say, Scott, just one thing, actually, acknowledging what you said. Like, the setup. I kind of like how absurd the entire setup is. Like, it's kind of ridiculous. And the movie's just like, we're just playing this completely straight. And I was like, I admire them for playing this ridiculous concept <laughs> completely straight. <laughs> so, yeah. I'll give it that points for that. But, um... Jolie has a lot of moments where her character is doing kind of the stuff we saw uh, Gina Davis do in Long Kiss Goodnight, like kind of these over-the-top spy tactics. I talked about the fire extinguisher, you know, rocket launcher earlier, but there was like multiple things. There's the spider venom, the entire convoluted blow the floor so the Russian president falls down the floor kind of stuff. Um, Tons of stuff like that in this movie. 
And I felt like she grounded it so well where it was ridiculous and the movie was playing it kind of weirdly serious, almost like it was a born realism, even though a lot mm. of it was kind of silly. But like the Jolie performance believed in this, like she was making this authentic, even at the end. When I'm watching a fist fight between her and Leif Schreiber, who I think like Leif Schreiber, isn't he like six foot four or something like that? Like he is a huge dude. I'm watching her fight him going like, I can mostly buy this. <laughs> she seems to be selling it. Oh, I mean, she definitely sells the part. I, I'm on board with the, the Jolie character. Although, it, yeah, seeing uh, Leif Schreiber, a.k.a. Sabretooth, yeah. taking on uh, <laughs> Evelyn Saul. Actually, that's actually probably a cool little spinoff, to be fair. And and with the whole spider thing, maybe she becomes Spider-Woman. Oh, well, they are launching a Spider-Woman movie. Oh, my God. There's, there's like so many franchises melding into one here. You've got a little bit of X-Men. You've got a little <laughs> bit of Spider-Man going on. James Bond with the Dying <laughs> of the Day stuff. It's all here. This is, this is the just, film. You know, this is the film. Lara Croft just, you know, just jumps in from yeah. Tomb Raider just because. It'd be awesome. Well, here's a question. When you obscure the motivation of your lead character through the entire movie... You don't have a strong sense of their identity. Is it possible in that first inaugural film to establish the identity of your franchise? Because, like, you don't really know what the hook of this quote-unquote franchise is going to be until the very end of the movie. So it's kind of like, maybe that's why when we're saying nothing really stands out, it's because the movie doesn't have an identity because it's obscuring it through the entire, you know, 90 minutes. Well, it sounds like we've pivoted into dislike territory here, Cam. <laughs> I, but, think, uh, I think we've so. done that several times already. <laughs> I think so. I, I think we might not have liked this film too much. but no. I, well, it's I, a frustrating it, one, right? Like it's, it's, it's not, it is. We've talked about movies that are so much worse. So much worse mm. on this show. It's not like that bad. Like As I said, you know, my original review was like two and a half, which is like, a, eh, if it's on TV, why not? Sure. But it's not something I would necessarily recommend people watch. But like, it's a movie that like you watch it and... You can just see all the missed promise, and that's what makes it frustrating. I, I think the I think that might be the the missing element that M was alluding to earlier, at least for me, is you look at all these spy franchises or just film franchises, we'll go wider, who have that initial entry that's not so good, and then it, it grows from there. You definitely at least get a sense of your lead or what they want the films to be. This film really doesn't give you anything about Evelyn Salt until the end, or it gives you misleads and misdirects, but it doesn't really give you the actual what her goal is until the end. And even then, it only gives you a vague idea of what it wants to do with the setup of a, of a follow-up film. And so it doesn't leave you going, I want to see a follow-up. It just leaves you at the end of the thing going, well, that was a story. Yeah. Well, like you, you read The Hobbit. The Hobbit doesn't say come back for, you know, the next book. The Hobbit is a self-contained story. The Lord of the Rings, you read The Fellowship of the Ring, that's leading on to the next book. That literally feels like it's leading on. This is this is more of a Hobbit than a Fellowship of the Ring. Or even, you know, Born Identity, which obviously had some, you know, inspiration that affected this movie here. Um, you know right away, Born wants to recover his memories and evade, you know, the CIA. And these, mm -hmm. op, you know, these operations that want to hunt him down. Like, that's kind of a basic prom uh, premise. You know who Bond is right out of the gate. He's a double O license to kill who's sent to stop, you know, people that would threaten humanity. Whereas with Evelyn Salt, you're like, okay, she wants to hunt moles. But I only know that by the end of the movie. The rest of the movie, she just wants to evade capture. But is she guilty? I don't know. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you can you can buy the hook early on when she's trying to protect her husband. That's what I mentioned earlier. 
Yeah. I get that. And then, then she watches him drown. And at that point, you're like, drown? What's she fighting? Uh, he gets shot. He, yeah. He's in the water, isn't he? Okay, no, there's actually different cuts of this movie. In one, he's drowned. In one, he's shot. So maybe Scott watched... Oh, I watch him drown. Oh, okay, so... he gets shot. <laughs> Oh, yeah. well, I didn't even know this. So what? Hang on then. Wow. So for listeners at home, you may have only seen one. So I watched him get drowned in a tank of water. Yeah. Uh, and so in the film you two saw, he's just shot in cold blood in front of her. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So what? Well, how did you watch the movie? Did you watch it on DVD or streamed it? Because I streamed it on Amazon Prime, and so the Amazon Prime UK version, he gets shot. Well, I streamed it. I don't know if it was the UK version, but I definitely streamed it. Oh, okay. Ah. Uh, okay. Yeah, because if you buy the Blu-ray of this movie, and I'm sure there's someone out there who has, um, it comes with like three cuts of the movie. And the one with like more of the teasing of sequel stuff is I think the Philip Noyce extended cut, but there's like another cut that's like like a 30 seconds to a minute longer. And I think that may be the one you watch, Scott, where it's just a few other elements are changed, like the um, the violence there with the husband. Yeah, because there's a really weird because you you see the actor uh, August Deal in the water gets you know covered up in this tank and then drowns. He like fights and then like a couple minutes later they have this really awkward shot looking back on the water where they've superimposed his face in the water. Oh, and it's one of the most awkward looking CG things I've ever seen. I'll put it, I'll put a screen crap online this week for people to look at. It's weird, but I didn't even know this alternate version existed, so I'll probably have to put that up as well. So there's that's so strange. What do you, interestingly then, question for you both. What do you think would be more effective? Do you think the in cold blood shot is more effective or the slow drowning of him in front of her? The shot moment is somewhat effective because it happens right in front of her and she doesn't flinch when it happens. Yeah. But you can definitely see just in Julie's eyes the impact that this has had on her. Like, again, this is why you hire an Oscar-winning actress to deliver a moment like that. But um, does she watch the drowning? Yeah, she's it's, it's right in front of her. He's basically in a tank at her feet. So, wh- yeah. wh- sorry, I'm just I'm just really curious. So, where does he drown? Does he? Because I know that a lot of the scenes, the scenes that Cam and I are talking about, take place on this boat. Um, yeah. So it's yeah, the same boat. Same boat. But yeah, so she she basically walks towards him, and she, I think she thinks because obviously she's she wants to rescue him, and then as soon as she walks towards him, they just shoot him. Oh no! Um, so mm. where? Where does he drown, like, outside of the boat, then? No, so she turns up to the boat, and she meets everyone, kisses the ring. <laughs> oh, you've got to kiss the ring. you always got to kiss the ring. You've got to kiss the ring. <laughs> we should have started with kissing the ring, but... Um, no, and then they open this, like, tank on the floor, and you see uh, Mike Krauss, the uh, arachnologist, tied up in the bottom of this water tank. That then they like flip, And then they said to her, like, I'm going to kill him, and she goes, okay, I don't care. And then they flip a switch, and then it slowly fills up with water. He struggles, and blah 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 blah. Interesting. I I wonder because yeah, the the one on Amazon. It's a lot slower. It's like two minutes of watching him struggle. Oh yeah, you don't have that. It's literally just bang dead, and then. But yeah, the thing is, she's really great in that scene because as soon as he dies, she's just she has this kind of facade on her face of, yeah, whatever. But it's Angelina Jolie, so she's. She's got those layers. Uh, that's what I alluded to earlier with like the layers of you can clearly see the torment that she's going through, but then she has to keep a straight face because she has to keep her cover. Um, you know, and uh, yeah, I'm really surprised that there's, 
I knew that there were multiple versions out there, but I didn't realize that there were multiple versions available to stream out there. I just assumed that the other versions were, like Cam said, just extras on the DVD. It's the first one I came across, but uh, I'd be interested to know what, what people out there have got and, and what they have seen and maybe what was in the, the cinema originally. I don't even know which one was which now. I believe the him getting shot was the theatrical version. Okay. Hmm. Well, seeing as we're into dislike territory, I'm going to throw a quick two out. Uh, the first one is I really disliked the name of the bar that they go to. <laughs> I have that noted too. Um... I don't think I'd ever want to go to a place called Jugs and Strokers. Oh. <laughs> That's where the Spy Hearts after party will be when we do our first live show. <laughs> I'll be the Jugs. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and um, the other thing, which is actually sort of tangentially connected to what we were just talking about, uh, not the Jugs or the Strokers, I don't buy the love story for one single second. Oh, between Angelina and her husband? Yeah. Really? Oh, yeah, I didn't either. <laughs> I didn't buy that at all. I kind it, of uh, did. That that kind of worked for me. There was something sweet about this woman who's like this kind of CIA-hardened person finding love with someone who's a little strange. You know, he's a guy who hangs out with insects. I, I kind of like that. Cam is just uh This is a wishful thinking from Cam here. <laughs> <laughs> I've started collecting insects and hope that a uh, beautiful CIA woman will find me. <laughs> Let me, let me show you my Star Trek connection. Oh, I've got the DS9 on my shelf. Uh-oh. Scott, <laughs> stop spoiling my life for the listeners. <laughs> Pull up. I, it's, it's not so much, I don't think, that there's like a, you know, you have to suspend your disbelief to believe that Angelina Jolie could end up with a, an arachnologist. I just didn't feel that they had particular chemistry. And yeah. there, was, there was only a couple of scenes really with them together and it was obviously the scene at the butterfly farm yeah which is all a little bit like oh you come here too yeah i, I come here too i'm an arachnologist and um and then the, the the scene where she's like can i make you breakfast and all of that that was nice but again it didn't really i didn't buy them as oh we're we're madly in love mm. and I, I get you know you've been married for a few years or whatever you're probably not going to be all over each other and you know, banging on the kitchen table, but um, I mean, to those who do. We're back to jugs and strokers again here, guys. <laughs> to those who enjoy their jug jugs and strokers on a Monday morning, then fair play to you. But um, yeah, I, I just didn't, their relationship just wasn't really satisfactorily built up for me to believe in their kind of love story. Or but for you to feel the loss when he dies. Oh, exactly. Because, but the thing is, Angelina Jolie sells that. Yeah. She sells it so that you know that the character cares, but the audience is a little bit like, well, but we don't care. Angelina Jolie sells that she does. So we kind of live vicariously through her in that, yeah, well, yeah, she must have loved this guy. But the movie doesn't really take great pains to actually show us that we should care about it. And I think that's probably a bit of a problem about the movie in general, to be honest. Like, why why should the audience care about Evelyn Salt's particular journey through this movie? Because I don't think there's actually much to persuade the audience because of the ambiguity of her motives. And, yeah, it, to be fair, I feel like we're, we're kind of repeating the same stuff over and over, but I think it bears repeating because... Yeah. 
This is not a terrible movie by any stretch of the imagination. No. There is a really good movie in here. It's just the way that they chose to make it, it leans more towards the not being good, if you know what I mean. Well, I think people can sense when there's a missed opportunity. Yeah. Yes. And this just feels like one. It's like if it were terrible, we'd just be lobbing bombs back and forth, like ridiculing it. Like it would be a case of that versus like, here are the problems and here's why they don't work for us, which is what's going on with salt. And, you know, when you're saying like the the romance lacked dimension, I would say it's portrayed very idyllic and very like a fairy tale scenario versus like a real relationship we buy into for sure. Well, um, I'm sure we've had a few already, but M, do you have any other dislikes you'd like to mention? I mean, the one thing that I feel like, and obviously this isn't a 2010 thing, because I feel like this movie, for me, is particularly overshadowed when it comes to 2017. Because if you compare this movie to Atomic Blonde, Atomic Blonde just gets everything right. Um, Atomic Blonde is one of those movies that you can continually go back to. It's engrossing, it's frenetic, it's kind of a little bit chaotic, but the action scenes are great. I feel like this movie in 2010 wants to be Atomic Blonde in 2017, but it's not there. It's like, maybe we had to have this movie to get Atomic Blonde, and if so, then this movie deserves all of the accolades and praise, because if this movie leads to Atomic Blonde, well then, that's a plus in my book. But, you know, for, for, for all of its general kind of misgivings, um, I feel like there's, there's so much that you can kind of put your finger on and say they could have done better at this. Or um, if this movie tried more to set up the character of Salt and make us understand her motivations more clearly than it does rather than think of setting up a potential sequel or a potential trilogy or a potential franchise then i feel like this if they'd focused on this rather than going oh well we want to we want an angelina jolly franchise so let's start with this one and we'll we'll get to a third movie eventually i feel like if they'd focus their time on this movie making this movie great without kind of setting up the whole oh we're going to end this on a cliffhanger so that the audience wants to come back but what is the audience going to come back to yeah because you can't just you can't just kind of bolster your movie by angelina jolie and and, and have that as the only thing because not even the great angelina jolie can uh make a movie successful at the box office and I feel like they were pinning all of their hopes on, well, we've got Angelina, show, so it'll be cool. Like, people will come and see this movie. And to be fair, people did see this movie. But I feel like they spent more time on the whole, well, it's got Angelina Jolie in, so it doesn't matter what we do, than we've got Angelina, so let's make this movie worthy of Angelina. Because it, it, it's kind of not worthy of her. She is. She elevates the material she has, but the movie should have been better in spite of that, not because of that. I almost get why she didn't want to come back. Yeah. I mean, when I look at the other Jolie movies that kind of fall into this realm, stuff like Mr. and Mrs. Smith, 
um, Wanted, which I, you know, I've named those two. But even even if you name like the original Tomb Raider, it's like those movies are selling something very specific and they kind of know what they are. And the quality is varying movie to movie there, but the concepts are pretty sound. And I always felt like this one is one where it's like, well, the movie is Angelina Jolie is a spy, which isn't like the most compelling of pitches for a movie like I like Angelina Jolie as a star I thought she was one of my favorite things in the Eternals um from last year but like she still got it and I think like this movie it just doesn't feel special enough and that's I guess something that's you know we've talked about like there's nothing in the action that stands out there's not a villain that's interesting these movies like hinge on how effective the villains are frequently and like Liev Schreiber great actor I've loved Liev Schreiber and lots of things but like it's very difficult to play a character who behaves one way the entire movie and then just has a heel turn out of nowhere at the end and you're supposed to buy him as your primary antagonist. It's like, oh, uh, okay, I guess. And then, like, the dude who plays Orloff, uh, Daniel Obrichitsky, um, he's fine, but it's a very generic character type. Yeah, um, well, I think I think we've had our fill of dislikes. I think before we go to the uh, final question, I'll just throw it out for any last notes i have one but i want to end with it so let's throw it out to m first you have any final notes for us do i have any final notes i feel like i've been maybe a bit overly negative i'm not known for being overly negative i like to be quite positive uh about everything really uh because you know movies are difficult to make and i'm and the thing is even with a movie like this you know that the cast and the crew would have worked tirelessly to get this made and it is something that, you know, we do need to mention. Any movie, every movie, regardless of how good it is, there's still a lot of hard work that goes on behind the scenes to get it made. And so from that point of view, then, yes, we should celebrate Salt. Absolutely. Um, one thing I did want to mention, um, which as a woman, um, I mean, as a man, you, you, you guys might agree, but at the start of the movie, when um, Salt is accused of being a spy, she obviously goes on the run, um, but she starts off in the um, CIA building and she basically makes her way through the building and uh, Cam mentioned the little rocket launcher that she, she makes. But a lot of the time she is basically trying to evade being captured and evade being found. And so she uses um, the um, fire... Extinguisher? What am I thinking? Extinguisher! I was thinking like fire retardant, but no, like that's a, like, that's like a... It's um, a blanket. Sheet. Yeah, blanket. No. Um, so yeah, the extinguisher. She uses the extinguisher to, um, to to cover the CCTV cameras and to make herself go invisible. Um, and then in one scene, she takes off her knickers and puts them on the camera. And as the movie progresses, and this is just something random that I picked up, but she never puts on another pair of knickers <laughs> throughout the movie. I did not know this. <laughs> Because if you remember, she, she goes to the little girl, she gives the little girl her dog, she puts on a pair of trousers, aka pants for American uh, listeners, but she never puts on a clean pair of underwear, which, you know, as a woman, um, I uh, underwear is great, um, you know, you should kind of not leave the house without it. And I just feel like that might have been maybe a little bit uncomfortable for her to not wear underwear for the rest of the movie but maybe that's just me uh i'm sure that she did manage to get some at some point but it's unfortunate that the title commando was taken 
that's a good one. I like that. <laughs> I uh, I didn't I I did note down the lack of underwear, but I did also commend her immediate removal of her heels. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Actually, yeah. That's a really good point because if we've learned anything from Jurassic World, it's that you can't run away from a dinosaur wearing heels. Absolutely. Or, well, you can in that movie, but um, you shouldn't because let me tell you, wearing heels it's not fun. It's really painful, and I I choose not to wear them anymore because they're. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculously painful. But yeah, if you're on the run from the CIA, you will not be wearing heels. I can guarantee you. Um, and um, yeah, I kind of feel like little things like that were Angelina Jolie kind of chiming in and saying, yeah, I know she's a professional. She's wearing heels in the CIA. But let me tell you, she's not going to run wearing heels. And yeah, so I feel like it's it's clear that she had uh, some say in this movie as to the character and and I like that because I like her and I've, I've always been a fan of her as uh, as an actress. And also, I think as well, we're kind of forgetting that at the time, um, she wasn't just an actor. She was a huge celebrity. She, Her and Brad Pitt, they were together. Cam, you mentioned she'd just given birth to twins, which in itself, in fact, she had twins. And then she did this movie is outstanding, you know, phenomenal achievement for her. But she was huge. She was a celebrity. She was on the cover of People magazine, you know. And and the fact that this is kind of the movie that came after all of that, after the birth of her twins, it kind of makes sense why this movie was big in a sense of, you know, it made a reasonable amount of money. But again, it kind of goes back to, I feel like this movie is not worthy of the actor Angelina Jolie or the celebrity Angelina Jolie. What about you, Cam? Any final notes for us? Well, it's something we haven't talked a lot about, but I just want to acknowledge, like, I said up front, like, I kind of appreciated the absurdity of the setup of this, you know, Russian moles are everywhere, everywhere kind of stuff. This <laughs> kind of Cold War hysteria kind of stuff you would see in, like, a 1950s sci-fi kind mm -hmm. of uh, allegory. But um, this movie has a lot of goofy stuff, like the spider venom, the, uh, like, the prosthetic the mask. The, oh my when she's oh. like dressed as like i guess a man i guess yeah i think so <laughs> yeah yeah that looks insane i'm like i am clearly staring at angelina jolie dressed as a man in this sequence but fair that enough. was our glimpse into what it would look like if tom cruise was in this film <laughs> no kidding right but also um when she when she is uh dressed as a man if you look at pictures of her brother in real life it looks like her brother like why didn't yeah. they just get her brother to play that because that would have made a lot of sense because they look a lot alike, but that her in a male mask looks like her brother. It's really weird. Yeah, um, they make a lot of choices like that through the movie that feel like they're, in a way, building a more fun movie than they actually are because they're constantly grounding it down to kind of this born kind of style. And I'm like, maybe they should have just gone a little bit broader with it, like make it a little goofier, make it a little more fun. And maybe then the audience would be a little more along for the ride versus feeling kind of remote. If it was like kind of fun throughout and it felt like the filmmaking was kind of high energy in that kind of way, might have clicked a little more maybe, perhaps. It's entirely possible. I would like to have seen more done with the spiders. Yeah, more with the spiders. I feel like that's a lot of setup for like the, a weird payoff. Yeah. I had a question. If you are being interrogated by the CIA and you tell them you have cancer, can they be like, uh, yep, true, true, we just done the scan. <laughs> 
I was like, is that a thing that they can do in CIA interrogation rooms? And then even when Evelyn is making her getaway and there's like those like blast doors slamming shut everyone, I'm like, is that something that happens on the CIA headquarters? Oh, yeah. That that was one of my questions, actually. It's why do they have blast doors at like random places in a corridor? Like that doesn't make any sense. You needed the stormtrooper voice being like, close the blast doors, close the blast doors. <laughs> Oh, this movie is so silly. <laughs> well, um, I'll round this out with my final note. And that is, I took a screenshot of Evelyn's dossier mm. that's very quickly flashed on the screen. And I found out it's actually all on IMDb. So here are a couple of her skills, her particular set of skills. Close quarters combat, applied explosive technique, rapid assault, counter-surveillance driving technique, covert communications, military free-fall parachuting, edged weapons, precision application of lethal force. Now, my question to you all is, what's on your dossier? Podcasting. <laughs> <laughs> Med- mediocre uh, podcasting. That was going to be my answer. Isn't that on all of our dossiers? <laughs> yeah, that's all I've got, I think. It's a one bullet point dossier. <laughs> <laughs> disavowed instantaneously and shredded <laughs> well i think that takes us on beautifully to the knock list scott we forgot one thing we should just note people will be all over us if we don't acknowledge it which is that orlov in the elevator has the rosa Klebs shoe james bond connection i just felt like we had to have that one out there because people would be pointed out to us on social media if we didn't mention this well, there's a few James Bond connections on here if you wanted to spend 20 minutes plugging all of that. But yes, the Rosa Klebs shoe does exist. I wonder if it had the poison tip. I don't think it did. I think it's just a knife. Yeah. But Rosa's one had a poison tip, right? Yes. Yeah. Well, there you go, James Bond fans. Are you happy? Are you happy now? Cam is. But, uh, you know, salt. Is it making the knock list or is it just a bit too overseasoned? M. You're up first. Yay or nay, Salt? What do you think? The last time I was on, I was on for uh, Die Another Day, which is another nice little link to James Bond there. If we're talking about James Bond links, uh, there's one for you. Um, And I was quite critical of Die Another Day. And it did not make the knock list because I felt like it wasn't great. Uh, (laughs) I'm not going to go, listen to that episode if you want to know more about Die Another Day. I'm just unplugging your podcast now. I don't even know if that's allowed, but I'm let us stop you. Yeah, go nuts. (laughs) Um, So, when I was thinking about whether this makes the knock list, um, I I wanted to try and be as fair to this movie as I possibly could be, and so I feel like because of what this movie is, um, it's a very rare entry into female spy movies not that it's necessarily the best one i feel like for angelina jolly and for the fact that this movie is just complete ludicrousy like there's nothing there's so many good things in this movie but they don't make sense there's so many like trails that like don't go anywhere um there's so much ridiculousness in this movie that i feel like because there is a good movie in here and i feel like the movie is decent enough as it is even though it's kind of not great for all of the reasons we've already talked about i feel like it have to, i have to say yes and 
and I feel like maybe I'm a little bit biased, but you know, who cares? That's fair. Who cares if a podcaster is biased, right? Um, because there's so few great female action spy led movies. I feel like we have to appreciate the ones we have. And no, this movie is not perfect. It's nowhere near perfect. But cool, Angelina Jolie does give it her all. She really does. And yeah, oh, there are better female-led movies out there, absolutely for sure. But I really do feel like I, I would recommend this. Um, so yeah, I think for that reason, I think it has to be a yes. But I feel like I feel like I might be the only yes. <laughs> It's your vote. You do what you want with it. And I think you've justified okay. it perfectly. Cam, what about you? It's a no for me. Um, I, I very much respect what Em is saying, but like, I don't know. Like, I look at something like Atomic Blonde out there and I'd be pointing people in that direction. And we've also, Scott, we put um, Hannah and we put Zero Dark Thirty on the list, which I think just are much more compelling female-led espionage movies, for me at least, to watch, which again, pointing you know to me, like I guess a male viewer. but those two I thought just really elevated the spy genre. They did really interesting things and found interesting dynamics to work within that genre. Whereas when I watch Salt, I'm like, like, what is it doing that feels like it's adding that much? I appreciate that they, you know, switched to Jolie. I think that's notable. But even when I'm considering other Jolie espionage movies, there's ones I would recommend over this one. So it's gotta be a no for me. Okay. This is the rare occurrence where I actually have a a vote that means something. In a <laughs> way, usually I'm voted out at this point. So that's uh, all the power. The last time I think this happened, uh, we had, oh, I think it was Chris Hewitt for You Only Live Twice. So uh, it's been a while since I've been in this position. No, there was one relatively recently. I can't remember what it was. Oh, Burn After Reading. Oh, yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, I'm going to... Well, one thing I've always said when it comes to my vote on the Noclis is I try not to think about other films. And I try not to let them influence my vote like i know atomic blonde is a good film i remember that distinctly yeah but i can't let that being a good film influence it and i also can't let the fact that hannah and zero dark 30 are already on the knock list sure to influence that either i think as i've said the concept here is a really interesting rich uh you know there's a lot they could really take from this if they really tried hard but they didn't and I feel like Angelina Jolie is the best thing in this film and the rest of it really isn't there. And so I think given that it's a bit of a misfire overall, despite its good concept, it has to be a no because I, I couldn't recommend this over Hannah or Zero Dark Thirty. But in terms of being just a, as it is as a film, I don't think I'd necessarily recommend it for people unless you wanted to be actively confused. Right. <laughs> or you liked spiders. <laughs> that too. Or, or or jugs and strokers. It's uh, absolutely. The thing is, is I feel like all of the points that we've made are valid points. Mm -hmm. There's no, in a way, there's no right or wrong thing because I think everyone, each one of us has said very valid things about this movie. No, it's not as good as something like Zero Dark Thirty. Absolutely not. It's no way as good as Atomic Blonde. Um, and I completely understand why you both would say no. And to be fair... I, I was kind of teetering. This is, even though it's a yes, it's a very light yes. It's not like a strong yes. You know, it's it's like, 
if no is like zero to 50 and yes is 51 to 100, this would like be on the 51. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, you know, really, really kind of light. Yes. But I, I enjoyed watching it again. Um, it kept me enthralled enough. Yeah, it didn't make sense in places, but I don't know. Just for the Angelina Jolie of it all, I guess. I, I, I can't argue with anyone's point. And I think, I think we've been very fair to this film. And I think ultimately what this film stands up is, is a frustrating example of a missed opportunity. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think we're all, we're all just a bit sad that we didn't get a better film, ultimately. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but there you go, folks. It's one yes and two no's. And as such, Salt is not making the knock list and the dossier on the film is complete and filed as classified. M, I want to thank you once again for stepping into the arena, donning your tuxedo, drinking a few martinis, I imagine, before you came along hmm. and joining us. And I will point out that since joining us for Die Another Day, you have also reviewed a James Bond film. I have. I have, yeah, yeah. I did. I did an episode on Goldeneye, and um, honestly, the response to that episode was was quite beyond anything that I expected. I got so many lovely messages about that, and uh, I am planning to do more James Bond for definite. I do actually have a spy movie coming very soon, and it is actually one that I know you guys have done. Ooh. So, uh, can, can we tease it thinking... here, or can you just tell us off air? What would you prefer? Is it here? Because well, I don't know when this episode is come is is due out. But is it British agent? <laughs> <laughs> I doubt it. <laughs> no, uh, no. So um, what I'm planning to do is uh, in a couple of weeks' time, I'm actually planning to cover the Man from Uncle. Oh, nice. The uh, the the recent. I think it was was it 2017? I think off the top of my head. Something the like that. Army yeah. Hammer uh henry cavill one uh, because i've only seen that movie once but i remember really enjoying it at the time um and so i think that might be quite an interesting one to uh to talk about the history and legacy of and and obviously that movie like this one never got a sequel and i feel like it was intending to have one mm -hmm. so um so yeah i um, i'm actually looking forward to going to that but yeah i will do more james bond eventually but there's a lot of james bond movies out there so and my, my list never gets any shorter. And it's just me doing this. So I feel like I have to kind of pace myself a little bit. That's <laughs> with, fair. With everything that I do. But um, hey, no, I, as I always say, there's far more to the spy world than James Bond. Much as we tackle them every couple of months or so, you know, there's far more out there. So don't ever feel bound by it. Trust me. Going for Man From Uncle is an excellent choice. And I'm sure our listeners will uh, love to hear your thoughts on it. I hope so. That would be nice. But um, for those who are hearing you for the first time, and where can they find more from you? Well, if you are hearing me for the first time, then I would absolutely recommend that you listen to another podcast. Now, you're listening to this one, and I appreciate you've only got one set of ears. But if you wish to listen to another one, then, um, yeah, my podcast is called Verbal Diorama. And each episode, I basically talk about the history and legacy of one sometimes two but mostly one movie um and i basically like to go into the whole production of that movie and how that movie came about because as i talked about a little bit earlier the fact that salt is not a good movie is kind of subjective even though i think most people might agree but ultimately the fact that any movie is made in the first place 
really should be celebrated. And that's what Verbal Diorama is all about. It's all about celebrating the making of movies, talking about production stories and basically how that movie went from from conception to completion. Um, and it's something that I've been fascinated in since, well, forever. So I thought, well, you know, why not make a podcast about it? And so for the last three and a bit years, that's what I've been doing. And it's super fun. And um, yeah, I love what I do. So hopefully if you enjoy this podcast, then you might enjoy listening to me talking about film history for a little bit. I, I don't know if it sells it to anyone, but there, there aren't many podcasts I listen to anymore. Uh, and there aren't many podcasters I look up to in this uh, podcasting universe. But your show is one of those shows and you are one of those people. So um, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Well, you can say that all you like, but I, 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 you have such a positive energy in your show online that I think this stuff should be celebrated. And it's why I've asked you back so soon from, I mean, it's been about a year since we did die another day. So it's not that soon, but I, I feel like shows like yours should be lifted up. And if this episode helps that, then uh, all the better. Well, thank you, Scott. That's really kind. And I've, and one of the things I found in just the general kind of podcasting journey is people are so nice. And I'm literally just me. I sit in a study and I research movies and I put episodes out about those movies. And so for people to sort of say anything nice about me or to me or behind my back, you know, whichever, whichever you want to do, as long as it's nice. Um, then yeah, it's 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 really lovely, and and I really appreciate that. Thank you. Well, Em, I want to thank you once again for taking the time to join us. Well, we'll of course have links to in the show notes below to your show verbal diorama, and it's been a, an hour or so now, and I think it's all time that we uh, come out as Russian sleeper agents and uh, and 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 wrap it up. So, Cam, what are we talking about next week? Yes, we are tackling the 1965 Vincent Price spy spoof. Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine. We are launching the first in a two-part franchise. Yeah, I, I've read some things about this film. Uh, I'm very interested to see what it looks like. I, I might need to drop a few tabs of LSD before I venture in. That's right, party on. <laughs> uh, well, there you go, folks. Your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to check out Dr. Goldfoot and the Bikini Machine and join us next week. Uh, now, of course, Salt did not make the knock list, but if you want to find out the films that did, you can head over to letterbox.com slash spyhards and find out more about that. And, of course, do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, get your damn panties off the camera. Barbican Station explores the spy world of Slough House and the slow horses created by author Mick Heron. Find it online at slough.house or in your favorite podcast app under Barbican Station.